Hello. I'm going to start this episode with a few words from my guest. He said, once upon a time, don't accept the world as it is. Dream about what the world could be. And that is Peter Tatchell in a nutshell. Peter Tatchell is a human rights activist, uh, social activist, and one of the leading figures for over 54 years in fighting for LGBTI freedom. Peter and I connected in 2017 and became friends um, as we were both supporting Amnesty International in their Love is a Human Right campaign. I released a song called What Love Would Want and uh, Peter's introduced that for me at several events, um, including the Isle of Wight Festival and, uh, and the first Isle of Wight Pride. I've been around Peter when he's on fire with passion for social change and it is infectious and inspiring and that's part of the reason I wanted to talk to him and to share that with you uh, to to see what it's really like for somebody during this time where it's so hard to express ourselves in, in the real world together and um, how somebody is navigating that and staying connected in a very human way so please put your feet up make a cup of tea and enjoy this super connected conversation with Peter Tatchell. Peter, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks, Tim. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk. Um, as I mentioned before, this is um, about understanding how communication technology has affected the way we all connect with each other. And what occurred to me was that with campaigning for human rights and uh, gathering people together for for important causes. Uh, and, and the kind of work that you've been doing your whole life has changed massively since uh, the digital revolution. And I, I'd love to talk about that and just how um, the, the pluses and the minuses uh, are weighed up through your very experienced eyes of social activism. Well, of course, there has been phenomenal changes in my lifetime, which makes me feel very, very old. <laughs> um, <laughs> Social media today is such an incredible boon in terms of getting out messages. It means that people can be their own publishers, that they can get out stories that are perhaps not being covered by the mainstream press. It also means they can alert people to actions at the click of a mouse. Um, you know, sending an email, Facebook, Instagram, or other social media message can reach thousands and thousands of people in a very short space of time. Mm. Um, it also, of course, means that when you want to uh, protest something, you don't have to get a petition and go around house door to house door or stand in a shopping centre for six hours. Which you did. You've done that many times, haven't you? Absolutely. You know, in, in the 60s and 70s, 80s, you know, when we did petitions, it was going knocking on doors, attending meetings to get people to sign up. Um, and standing around in shopping centres and other public places to get people to sign. It was very long, slow and laborious. When you think about 
um, messaging people about protest or causes. Uh, in the 1960s, when I began my campaigning, um, it was totally different. The way you did it was <laughs> completely like the Stone Age. You know, there were no photocopiers, no mobile phones, no internet, no email, none of the basic things that we now take for granted. So the way you got the message out was you would create a leaflet and you would do this by typing on a waxed sheet of paper that you'd buy from a stationer's. You'd put it on a manual typewriter writer you'd slam the keys very hard so they'd go through the wax paper to make an impression of each letter. If you made a mistake, you had to use nail varnish to <laughs> out the area where you made the mistake and wait till it dried and then retype oh. the letter. Of course, this meant there were no graphics. It was just capitals and lowercase, underlining, asterisks and things like that. That's all you could do. Mm. But see, once you'd done it on the wax paper, then you take that to uh, a machine, uh, which was a, a, a large inked drum, which was filled with ink, and you'd wrap the paper around the drum, and then you'd crank it by hand. Yeah. And every time the um, paper went through, it would leave an impression on the sheets of paper, and they'd come out as leaflets. And then you'd have to go around, standing in a shopping center or a tube station, or going door to door, distributing those leaflets. Yeah, now, it took hours and hours and hours. And of course, if it was a real emergency, the only way you could mobilize people was a thing called a telephone tree. So you'd be in an organization, and everybody in the organization would have a telephone tree. Uh, person A would phone person B, and they'd have perhaps have ten people on their telephone tree, and they would phone ten of them. Then they would phone. 10, of pe 10 people on their telephone tree, and they would phone 10 people on their telephone tree. And that's the way you, you got the message out, was by telephone. Of course, in those days, lots of people didn't have telephones. You had to go to a coin box to do it. Mm. Yeah, a, a supply of coins. So it was very, very, very laborious. And, but even and in the 1990s, when I was involved with Outrage, um, to put out our news releases, um, initially, we would have to produce them. Well, we had a photocopier by then on, on a photocopier. Then we put them in an envelope and I would go around uh, in the middle of the night delivering the newsletters, the news releases to the papers. So they got them first thing in the morning. I would cycle around my bike from newspaper office to newspaper office all over London. Mm. Um, you know, so social media is such a boon. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to say that, uh, uh, that communicating those ideas, which are very important ideas that you've been communicating for 54 years, is it? Mm -hmm. um, it, it I'm not going to say that it's, um, it, it's not effective or it's not as good as it used to be. But I wonder... Um, all of the things that you describe going, um, you know, hammering away at typewriters and wax paper and, and, and this real, real DIY as in sort of craftsman kind of DIY approach to campaigning and activism and ultimately for one purpose, which is to communicate 
something, isn't it? That's what you're doing. It's it's uh, and now with a tap of a of, of a screen, you you communicate potentially to lots of people. But does it? But does it feel um, ever that are you just pleased that it's not as much work, or do you recognise there's something in like being a, a master craftsman or an architect or an, or an artist, you know, being that creative uh, just to communicate something that you charged it up with some some real energy? Um, do do you do you ever miss it, or do you do you think do you feel differently about it that to just tweeting and sending emails? Does, well, it course, mean, does it mean as much to you? Well, of course, in the past, the communication process was much more a collaborative effort. You had a whole team of people to, you know, type the message on the wax paper, run it through the Ronio machine, um, then go and distribute it. So you, ha you had a team of people. Mm -hmm. um, and nowadays, it's very much more personal, individualized. You do it by yourself. Um, you know that sometimes there are social media teams for big organizations but mm -hmm. most of us is just a diy job so there's still that element of do it yourself yeah. um but I, I i don't miss the workload it is it is much easier and less physically demanding and taxing than in the past and that's great of course the downside is that um you know social media has become so toxic you know Fascism is to come to Britain, it will come on the wings of Twitter. Um, you know, the toxic level of abuse, threats, harassment, trolling, and so on is just so, so shocking. So it's enabled people to do things via social media that they would mostly never dare do to another person's face. Mm -hmm. And that has, I think, led to a great deal of social harm. I, mean, I know lots of activists who have simply dropped out of social media because the toxic inflammatory bullying intimidation is so great and i know people have had real mental health crises over it and so that is definitely the downside and i'll even say to yourself myself that um you know i don't often look at my twitter notifications they are so toxic mm. um i get death threats um you know in all kinds of smears intimidations uh fabrications misrepresentations it's just standard and, and was that, that standard before? Be how it is was that standard before social media for you peter or not not really well yes but on a much lesser scale and people had to go to real effort to go and put a firebomb through my flat door or put a bullet through my front door or um a brick or a you know iron bar through my windows um and thankfully that doesn't happen anymore but it's only really in the last few years that it stopped mm. um, and i lived for like 30 years like being through a low-level civil war where i was constantly in fear of injury and even being killed mm. i was targeted mostly by the far right but sometimes by islamist extremists and supporters of tyrants like President Mugabe of Zimbabwe. Um, it was hell. You know, whenever I left my flat, I was looking over my shoulder in fear of being attacked. And I have been personally, physically violently assaulted over 300 times. It's incredible. And more than, and more than 50 attacks upon my flat. And arrests, I think, Owen, uh, how many times have you been arrested? About 100. 
about 100 times. That's out of that's out of over 3000 direct action protests sure. in the last 54 years. And um, ultimately, the reasons for your arrest or, and, and being attacked are, are all because you're communicating something that somebody else doesn't want you to communicate. Is that about right? Absolutely. In many ways, I, well, perhaps I try to rationalize, I take the threats and the hate mail as a backhanded compliment. Clearly, I'm riling the bigots. <laughs> And that's a good thing. I, you know, I'm I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a weekend activist compared to you. But I remember when I started Save Soho, and um and and some of the landlords uh, had got pretty angry and said some pretty you know nasty things about me. Uh, a a, a councillor from Westminster, a nice councillor from Westminster, if you can believe that, uh, uh, said to me, Tim, you better keep going. You're doing something right if they're if they're saying stuff like that. Um, so I know I know that side of it. I don't I don't think I, I have the, don't have the heart of of the lion that you have to stay in that frontline activism. Um, I, I've you know I've gone back to how I always used to, which is through art, I suppose, and, and music and and writing. But, well, that's uh, also important. You know, there's there are many different ways to promote human rights causes, and some people like me will do it through political activism. Others like you will do it through art and music and both are valid and both are important. And I would say that art and music can often reach people that direct political campaigning don't. So that doesn't. So yeah. in that sense, um, you know, it's two sides of the same coin, two and different I, methods for the same goal. Yes, indeed. And, and I, I've, I've really loved it. The, the times that we've done that together as well. And, you know, we, we did the, uh, the action with Amnesty at the at the Russian embassy, which is where, really where we met properly, I suppose. Uh, and then on, on the Isle of Wight as well, I remember for the first IOW Pride. Uh, and and I always um, it felt a little bit like because uh, I was performing songs and talking a little bit about it, but you were really doing some um, marvelous oratory and 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 you know uh, expressing. Kind of, I think they were both LGBT causes, weren't they? And um, and it struck me that on those occasions, it was a bit like being in a band with you backstage, uh, waiting to go on. Um, and I, I, I do, what does it feel like at the moment? Where because you that's you're a performer as well when you're communicating causes that you're fighting for. Um, what's that like? You know, sort of through the pandemic, where there's been quite a clear instruction shall we say uh, not to do that uh, for you it's your it's your very dna isn't it to express your thoughts and feelings about uh, unjust laws well first let me say that um you said i'm a performer well i think i don't do it very well but i try my best and uh, i would love to be able to sing and use singing as a medium um, to communicate, and there is a repressed singer inside me deep down. Um, you know, I do mentoring as well for music. So, do... <laughs> I, I do music mentoring now. So we could, we could, we could work on that. Well, I'm told I have a good potential bass baritone, but um, I've never had the time to develop it. But um, I keep on practicing. Um, someday we'll all be free. Indeed, I did once sing it as a pride event, and I just about pulled it off um but i've been too scared to try again <laughs> um 
but back to your point about the limits on protest, um, that is definitely one of the downsides of the lockdown. Um, it has meant that so many things the government has done have not been open to the kind of challenges that would have happened in ordinary circumstances. Um, you know, I was at the protest against the police crime and sentencing bill um, uh, on Saturday, the 3rd of April. Mm -hmm. um, I wore a mask. I maintained social distancing pretty much, not entirely. Um, but I think that that protest, which had probably had maybe two or 3,000 people, would have been 10 times bigger if it hadn't been for coronavirus. Mm. And, you know, this new bill um, does definitely threaten our right to protest. It, it is draconian in the powers that it gives the police. Um, it is, in some respects, giving the police um, some of the powers that the Russian and Hong Kong police use to suppress protest there. It gives them discretionary powers. They can decide, you know, when a protest will start and when it will finish, how noisy it's allowed to be. The Home Secretary is going to be given powers to unilaterally decide what constitutes serious disruption, disruption um, which is effectively giving her the power without parliamentary approval mm -hmm. to criminalise peaceful protest. Yes. That's why, that's why these protests against the bill are so important. We talked about this, didn't we, on, on Clubhouse in, uh, with Daniel Lismore uh, about the, uh, the, the, the ridiculous uh, reality that so few people actually knew about the bill anyway. Um, and I remember the day that I wrote that letter for as a template for the people to use to write to their local MP. Amnesty still hadn't done anything. Um, is, is that uh, um, they have now? They're very much on, on top of it. Um, is there something in the last year of the lockdown that's um, slowed down, you know, uh, the wheels of some of the uh, more notable um, activist armies like Amnesty, people like that? Um, a bit. I don't think there's been any major slowdown by Human Rights Watch, mm. Amnesty International and so on. Um, they may have, in this particular instance, been a bit behind the curve, but but overall they've continued. And, yeah. you know, what I'm getting at is, is, is there a, an inherent part of uh, uh, being an activist, being a social activist, fighting for a cause or a right that, that is really actually very dependent on uh, community and, and being in a space together. Um, I mean, you'll be the, the best person to ask this question to. In terms of um, connection, when we want to change something in the society that we're living in, um, is, is, it, is it really possible to do that with tweets? You, or do, is it like um, Extinction Rebellion have shown? Is it actually just as dependent on people being kind of shoulder to shoulder and, and really seeing and feeling that energy where everyone's sort of breathing in time, like a concert, a music concert? I think you're right. I mean, it certainly is possible through social media to bring about change. I mean, getting a pardon for Alan Turing um, mm. came about largely through a social media campaign which got tens of thousands of signatures in a very short space of time. Mm. So that did produce a result. But there's been many other campaigns that haven't. 
I think that reliance on social media alone is, you know, not not the right way to go. It's it's not sufficient, and also it's a very individual, privatized form of protest. You're doing it alone. You're at your computer and you're clicking away, and that's great. But it's it's very individual, non-public. You're by yourself. Yeah. Whereas a physical protest, you're there with a community of like-minded people who share your passion and concern to overturn injustice. And being with those other people gives you a great sense of um, community, of solidarity, um, of support, that you don't feel alone, that you, you feel that you are part of something bigger, broader, wider. And that really has been the way in which historically all great social movements have succeeded. Mm. It's by people actually coming together physically. You, we, you, you can look at the anti-apartheid movement against South Africa. You can look at the struggle uh, against the poll tax. Mm. You can look at the example of the Green and Common Women protesting nuclear weapons. These have all been huge mass movements replicated recently by Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion. Mm. Um, there was no substitute for the actual physical protest, although a protest itself is not sufficient. You have to have not only a protest against something, you also have to have positive, constructive, radical, achievable goals to replace them. Mm. So if you don't like X, you have to have an alternative to have credibility and to put the authorities under pressure. I can remember this very well back in the days in the 1990s with the LGBT plus campaign group Outrage. We were very much against the police harassment of the LGBT plus community. Um, you know, by 1999, the number of gay and bisexual men convicted for consenting same-sex behavior was almost as great as in 1954-55, when male homosexuality was totally illegal and when the country was gripped by a McCarthyite-style anti-gay witch hunt. Now, the response to that was initially, quite rightly, I think, to try and negotiate with the police. Mm. Uh, when that didn't work, outrage walked out of those meetings, and we began a very high-profile profile campaign of direct action, including occupying and protesting outside police stations, um, uh, busting undercover policing operations, uh, putting warning stickers in parks and public toilets about police surveillance and so on. And after about three months, we got masses of publicity about this. The police looked like bullies, you know, mm. spending hours and hours and huge amounts of public money to stake out a park in the middle of the night just to catch gay men having discreet sex in a place where no one else was present and they were only discovered because of the police stakeout. So we won the battle. And so the police, having lost the PR war, um, were trying to save face. So they invited us back to the negotiating table, which of course we did. But we didn't come back empty handed. We came back with, I think, um, a nine or 12 point program for non-homophobic policing. Mm. Um, concrete, practical, achievable things the police could do. And it completely yeah. threw them. It threw them because they, would, they just saw us as a protest group, which they could easily dismiss and bat away. But when we came back with concrete, practical proposals, which we either thought of ourselves or borrowed 
for best practice by more liberal police forces in Amsterdam, Copenhagen and Stockholm, they were completely thrown. And eventually, um, because we publicized our proposals and campaigned around them, the police acceded to our demands. In fact, by the end of the first year of renegotiations, the police had agreed to three quarters of our demands. And within three years, the number of gay and bisexual men convicted for consenting same-sex behavior fell by two thirds, the wow. biggest, fastest fall ever recorded. So our direct action campaign backed up with radical, achievable, practical proposals worked. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew a lot of what you were saying, but for the benefit of listeners and watchers, um, it's so nice that you that you, you explained all of that. It was such an important time. It was around the time that I moved to Soho and um, for, for the very reasons, you know, the freedom and, and the freedom of expression more than anything else uh, that was that felt that permitted. Um, how do you how do you uh, n- navigate? What is true and not and, and what is not true in the digital space, and what I mean by that is, it, obviously, there's there's bots and uh, there's there's elements of um, technology and social media that, that you know, algorithms, and you're not entirely sure, and it it can throw some people into a uh, just not sure which which side to take. It's been like this a lot recently. Uh, you know, the, with, with conspiracy theories and stuff like that, it feels so hard. But when I see you doing your work, I see the same thing I've seen all my life with you. That you're, 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 you've got some sort of inner um, compass or something that's that's telling you the right direction all the time. I've heard you, I've heard you support gay people, uh, trans people, black people, uh, people of color. Um, and uh, I've heard you support women, and then I've heard you call them all out as well. It seems you as, for, for for different issues. It seems really clear that you've got quite a strong moral compass and what it is to be um, human and kind and uh, and accepting accepting of other other people. And and yeah, I think for the younger younger people who's starting out with social media and the way that you didn't. Uh, it's a much harder terrain to to get well, what's real and what's not real, what's the truth. How do you navigate that when it, it's becoming more and more uh, difficult to know what what the truth is when we are just looking at the the media side of things? Well, my rule is always be skeptical, doubt and question everything. Don't assume that it is right or true do your research who's saying this do they have a record a history check it out um also of course see what other people who you respect how they are responding to what is being said so look to allies and friends and supporters Mm -hmm. for a cue but don't just take their word for it (laughs) do be skeptical do do question Um, I think for me, my golden rule is no matter what people throw at me, I'm always polite and courteous. I never respond in kind. Um, So people can threaten to kill me, to castrate me, to 
decapitate me and all the other terrible things they've said. But I either just ignore those people or others who are a bit more reasonable, but maybe maybe say bad things or wrong things. I just politely, you know, make my point. Mm. Um, I think civility is not weakness. It's actually a strength. If you can respond to haters with a kind, gentle, honest, truthful, factual response, that's the best way to go. And perhaps in the end, people might come to respect you. So I can think of many, many examples in my life of people who trolled and demonized me for years. I never responded in kind. I was always polite. Um, I gave them the facts. And I can think of quite a few of them who are now grudgingly friends and allies. <laughs> There are many who are not, of course, but there are some. Um, I also think it's really important that um, on social media, we treat others as we would expect them to treat us. Mm. Um, you know, for social media to be really effective, it does need to tone down the toxicity because that just distracts. If, if we get into a hate fight, that's not progressing an issue. Mm. And I know there are lots of provocations and many times I feel like exploding inside, but I think just be calm and to tell people to F off and all that kind of stuff, that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't progress anything. Mm. It just makes you look bad like them. Yeah. So I think taking the higher moral ground is always the way to go. Mm. Mm. And in, in, in your long um, experience of um, the camaraderie and, and the, the, the real community aspect of, of change, of social change, I know that there's a serious issue uh, that, that we fight when we're in, we're in a crowd together. We've got placards and, um, and whatever. But for you, Peter, what, what is... What's the feeling that you love about it? Because I'm going to guess there's a part of it that you love you because you haven't ever stopped in 54 years. What do you really love about the, the feeling of you know being with other human beings to create change? Well, first of all, it's it's the camar camaraderie, the comradeship, the solidarity is awesome. Secondly. It gives me strength to know that I'm not alone. There are other people who share my values, ideals, and objectives. Um, it also sometimes can be great fun. Yeah, you know, I remember the protest, the Pope um, mass demonstration in 2010, just before Pope Benedict came to visit Britain. Mm. Um, the joy of that protest is it's one of the best ever. Um, people were angry against the Pope, but it was basically a joyful protest. I mean, I've never seen so many witty, funny, clever placards on any protest ever. And it just brought a smile to everyone's lips. And even the critics, even the critics acknowledged that this was not an angry Pope-faced protest. It was a joyful protest, affirming the rights of women to be able to control their own reproductive cycle the rights of LGBT plus people, 
the rights of dissident Catholics and people of other faiths and so on. So I think that's a great model of how a protest can and indeed should be. Mm. And I, you know, just to conclude a bit what we're talking about, I never knew, I never know quite how these conversations are going to go, but as, as ever, I've not, we've not spoken for ages at length and uh, you are, you are an inspirer, you know, you're a light bringer. And uh, I just wondered for those much younger individuals that are, waking up to the idea and the concept of, of, of protest. Um, I suppose, like, if we look at the late 60s, which is a great time, the counterculture and, uh, and, and, and the protests that were happening on both sides of the Atlantic, there were 16, 17, 18, 19-year-olds that were absolutely sort of propelled by it all, weren't they? Yeah, and you were one of them, is that right? Mm. Absolutely. Um, and then this is a weird atmosphere now to be that age and 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 want social change because I think it's I think it's just it's part of being a teenager you look at stuff and go I want to do something about this um what would you what what do you want to say to that generation that have maybe 15 16 17 in the, in the middle of a you know pandemic lockdown where the idea of going out and being your big loud messy human expressive self is not being permitted, um, what would you say to them? Well, of course, it's not up to me to dictate or propose what young people I'm not asking you to insult They are mind. very capable of doing it themselves, and we've seen yeah. so many of them do it. Um, you know, we've seen... You are, you are approaching... All the young people leaving school and going out into the streets to demand action on climate change. So I think... Obviously, the lockdown has been a big damper, and I can understand why a lot of people of all ages feel very confined and constrained by the limits on protest. Um, but it will come to an end. And in the meantime, there are things that people can do online. Mm -hmm. So you know, we need to get that petition against the anti-protest bill to a million signatures. Mm -hmm. You know. We need to lobby our members of parliament, which you can easily do via a website called righttothem.com. If you go to that website, it asks you to give you, it asks you to give them your uh, postcode. Then it will tell you the name of your uh, member of parliament, your local councillors, the member of the London Assembly or the Scottish Parliament or Welsh Assembly, uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly. And you can email them directly from that website. It's really, really easy. And MPs treat emails the same as they treat a physical letter. So if you can bombard your MP or get your friends to bombard your MP with um, emails about issues that concern you, then that will have an impact because MPs think, well, if this person thinks this, um, you know, there's votes in this, there's, there's, there's votes at stake. Um, perhaps I better rethink my stand on this policy. It's as simple as that, isn't it? A, a, a yeah. lot, not all the time, but a lot of the time. Um, and is there anything else you wanted to um, say? You know, I mean, it, you're, you've got a lot of uh, campaigns that you're working on. And is there anything in particular that you wanted to include in, in this? 
well, how many? How long have you got? <laughs> how long we got? I, um, I, we got a couple of minutes, but I just thought if there was something special that that you are, you know, rallying up the troops for at the moment. If you want well, to... still supporting the campaign to ban LGBT plus conversion therapy, which the government promised to do nearly three years ago and hasn't done. Um, securing compensation for gay and bisexual men convicted under historic anti-gay laws, some of whom went to prison and many others who are heavily fined, they deserve compensation. Um, we also need to ensure that uh, the government's new proposed uh, um, curriculum on relationship sex education, which is going to be inclusive of LGBT plus issues, that it's not only inclusive, but inclusive in a very quality way. And that this isn't just something that schools will go through the tick box motion of giving a lesson a year or something, but they actually do it, you know, lesson after lesson that LGBT plus issues are in integrated into relationship and sex education. And indeed that that education is better quality for all young people of all ages and all sexualities and all gender identities. Mm. Uh, Peter, you are literally the Obi-Wan Kenobi of uh, human rights. I think. <laughs> yeah. And I think it a really a, a, a really important time um, to, to be in this position that you're in. You know, things are changing quicker than ever in terms of uh, how we are living our lives and how we're trying to and the changes that we want to make. And, um, you know, having your voice. Uh, available in the middle for all of us is is so important uh, your passion and uh, tenacity as well is uh, you know it's a really beautiful thing um well, so i try my best i try my best <laughs> but there are millions of others who are also doing things they may not do it my way but they're doing it their way and that is valid too so it's our cumulative collective effort that makes the change together we are stronger. Peter Tatchell, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Tim.